Well, when I was a young kid growing up in the rural countryside, out kind of on the outskirts of Hot Springs, um, oftentimes in the afternoons when I'd finish my school and my chores, I'd take my BB gun and I'd go out shooting. And I would shoot at all kinds of stuff, you know, fire ant hills. And, and uh, I like to shoot at, at flowers and try to see if I could hit the stem just perfectly to where I you know, shot the top of the flower off. So I, I enjoyed doing this in my free time. And, you know, if I, if I missed a shot, it wasn't really a big deal. I mean, nobody was watching, really. It was just me out there. So I would, if, I, if I missed what I was aiming for, I'd just take aim and take another shot. I didn't really care all that much because I wasn't really trying to impress anyone while I was out there. But one day, I did care. There was one day that uh, I was at my friend's birthday party and they were having a BB gun shooting competition. So a bunch of people were watching, including uh, a girl that I liked at the time, a girl I had, had a crush on. And so everybody was watching and, and each of us uh, took the BB gun and we, we got to our position and when, when my turn came, there I was, you know, and it seemed like the whole world was slowing down. I could, you know, feel my heart beating. And I was trying to remember everything that I'd, that I'd learned, you know, off the old westerns and off the old Davy Crockett movies I used to watch, you know, like, line up those sights, uh, don't pull the trigger, squeeze it, you know, I was making sure I'd, I did everything right. I, I can't remember if I, if I said a prayer, but I wouldn't be surprised if I, you know, shouted, a, you know, gave a silent quick plea for help uh, to the Lord before I took my shot. And, you know, this, this shot really mattered to me because I, I wanted the, the glory of victory so badly. And I feared the shame of defeat so much, especially in front of all those people and in front of that girl. So this is probably as, as serious as I'd ever taken shooting a BB gun. Well, I took aim uh, at one of the plastic bottles that was sitting atop the, the hay bale, and I squeezed the trigger, and I hit the bottle, and, it, and two bottles fell. So I, I hit the, the plastic bottle in just the right place, and it fell sideways, and it knocked over another bottle. So all of a sudden, you know, you can imagine the, the excitement as, you know, seven-year-old me, and now I'm the, the hero of the of the birthday party, you know. So for a few minutes, I was, I was a hero, and it was, it was great. But I, I, t I share this to say that, you know, isn't it true that when something really matters to us, the more it matters to us, the more seriously we, we approach it, the more seriously we take it. I took that shot so seriously because it mattered to me so much. And because of that, the sorrow of disappointment, if I'd missed, would have been so much greater. And the joy of hitting my target was far greater than, than ever any of the other times that I'd shot a, a daisy off its stem. Well, what about your relationship with God? You know, even to all of us who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation, you know, we found the forgiveness of sins through trusting in the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. 
how seriously should we approach the process of spiritual growth, of maturing in our faith, of growing in our character, growing in Christ-likeness? That's what we're going to be considering this morning as we turn in our Bibles to Philippians 2. So if you have your Bible this morning, please turn to Philippians 2. Or you can, uh, you can find this on page 922 in the Pew Bible, page 922. Philippians chapter 2, as we continue our study through the book of Philippians this morning. We're going to be in verses 12 and 13. And as you find your place, if you're able this morning, I'm going to ask, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Starting in verse 12 of chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. You may be seated. Well, there's, as we look at these verses, there's one central imperative. There's one command, one to do. You see it there in verse 12? Work out your own salvation. That's, that's the, the kernel. That's the, that is the, the central call to action that is found in these verses. And the rest of what's being said here revolves around this call to action, this, this command, this to do. It's explaining how this is to be done continually, you know, whether Paul is present or absent and with fear and trembling. And then in verse 13, we're also given the why, why we're to do this for the manner in, in which it's to be obeyed. It's the reason we're to go about it in this way is for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so my goal this morning, which I take from these verses, is to encourage you to approach your Christian life with an appropriate determination and with an appropriate seriousness, which our passage describes here as as fear and trembling. As you recognize that it is God, your very God and Savior, who is at work in you, working in you, in your living as a Christian, and that he's after something that is beyond what we could ask or think, something that's so glorious. And so here's where we're going this morning. First of all, uh, as our first point, we're going to clarify what it means to work out our salvation. We're going to consider what that means. Secondly, how is this to be done continually, you know, whether, whether Paul was present or absent, and with fear and trembling? And then third, why are we commanded to do this? And, and why in this way? Why in this manner? So first of all, as our first point this morning, what is it to work out our own salvation? What does that mean, to work out your own salvation? Our, our first clue comes from the wording of this command. You notice there in verse 12, it doesn't say uh, work for your salvation. It doesn't say 
earn your salvation, as if it's something that we've got to merit by our achievements. Rather, it says to work out your salvation. So Scripture is very clear that we cannot earn our salvation. It cannot be viewed as a wage for our labor for God, as if, as if we could ever put God in our debt somehow and say, God, here's what I've done. Now you owe me. Never can that be the case. Rather, every gift that we receive is mercy from God. It's grace. And salvation is a gift from God. It's the wages of Christ's labor, freely given to those who do not work. As, as Romans 4 says, we don't work for it, but we do work it out once we have it. But further clarification is, is needed. We typically, when we talk about salvation, how do, we, how do we often talk about it? You know, we say that so-and-so got saved, as if it was like this, this event, this moment that, that happened. And, and then, yeah, of course it'll have consequences down the road, benefits down the road, but we, we typically, when we speak of salvation, we, we're thinking of the moment of justification, when someone is, uh, puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and they receive the forgiveness of sins. They receive the full pardon for everything that they've done and will do because of the, the death of Christ. And that's, and that's true. That, it is okay to speak of salvation in that way. That's biblical. But, but we also need to see that the Bible does sometimes use the word salvation in other senses than just talking about that that moment of first trusting in Christ and our change of status, of legal status, justification before God that, that happens. The Bible also speaks of salvation with other nuances and meanings. It's helpful to be reminded of the many different blessings, the many kinds of priceless spiritual treasure which are included in the word salvation. There are many different gifts in this package. You know, we, th we just thought about justification, but there's also adoption and sanctification and glorification. When God saves us, he doesn't merely remove our guilt and our, our, our condemnation, our criminal record of trespasses against his law, which is justification. He also gives us the gift of sanctification. That's also part of our salvation. And, and sanctification is, is when, the word means to be, to be set apart, cleansed. It's, it's God uh, setting apart pardoned sinners. And, and, and in that, he's actually transforming them. He's doing something to them. There's a positional sanctification that takes place before God. But in sanctification, there's also a process of further sanctification that happens in which God renovates us. He begins to change who we are from within. And this gift of salvation is not just something that's done for us. There's also an, an aspect that, that we... Uh, work in sanctification as God works in us. 
So the Bible can speak of Christians as those who are sanctified, 1 Corinthians 6.11, as, as a past tense, but sanctification is also something that is done in us by degrees. So there's kind of an already and there's a continuation. There's further sanctification. Justification, you know, being made right with God, that happens in a moment. And importantly, it happens at the beginning of the Christian life. So we, we can come to God knowing that we have peace with God even now. It's not a, a carrot on a stick that God holds out in front of us that, that hey, if we, if our, our, we avoid certain heinous sins and achieve certain virtues during our lives, then we'll be justified at the end. You know, then we'll have peace with God based on how we do, based on our performance. The gospel is good news to sinners. If, if justification, if God doesn't give us peace and, and reconciliation as a free gift because of the work of Christ, that's, that's not good news. Justification, the Bible says in Romans 4, is to those who do not work, but believe on him who justifies the ungodly, the wicked, which is what we all are apart from God's mercy and forgiveness. But the part of sanctification that's an ongoing process in our lives, that does involve activity. It does involve us doing certain things as God works in us and through us. It's a further cleansing of our consciences and our character and conduct that goes on throughout our lives until we reach heaven. And all of those that, that God has already forgiven and promised eternal life, he sends his Holy Spirit to change their character. And this, this ongoing work of sanctification is what is being talked about here in verse 12 when it says to work out your own salvation, to work it out. And this understanding of, of, of salvation here, of, of how this word is being used in this context, this is supported by the rest of Philippians. I mean, for one, Paul has, the people he's writing to, he addresses them as saints. In other words, those who are holy before God. Those who have been made holy in a, in a positional sense, justified and positionally sanctified by God. But now there's something more that's to be done in them. There's, there's this good work that God began in them, but it's continuing. And there's an ongoing process. They're now to live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. In that, in that he's calling them to continue unpacking all of the benefits of their salvation that Christ has given them, to, to unpack this, this gift of sanctification. And so, how do these saved people live as saved people? And this is a question for us. How do we, as saved people, forgiven people, how do we live as saved people? Notice, the language is not just passive. It's not just, hey, just let go and let God. It's, there is a call, certain call to exertion on our part, to effort, to work out 
our salvation. That's, a, that's an active word that, that calls us to, to act, to do. In this ongoing process of sanctification, I like the way that Dr. Sam Waldron explains it. He says, it is a matter of faith working. We are, we are sanctified by faith, but not merely a faith that's resting on God's promises, but also by a faith working by God's directives, by God's instructions. A faith that, that when God says, do this, and we say, I can't do this in my own strength, but I'm going to do it, trusting that you're going to help me to do it. Just like when the Lord told Moses, stretch out your hand over the Red Sea so that the waters will be parted. And Moses obeyed, and God, working through Moses, parted the water. And so, faith working by God's directives. And so, Scripture calls us who are resting our hope for eternal life solely and completely in the finished work of Christ and His promise of, of full forgiveness, full pardon to everyone who believes upon Him. If, we have, if we're trusting in Him in that way for our justification, now, because we're saved, we're not simply to coast through the rest of our lives and just, just kind of put it in cruise control until we reach heaven. There's a call to action now as those who are saved. And we're to do certain things like count others more significant than ourselves, to look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others, as we thought about in recent weeks. So this is what it means then to work out your own salvation. It's this working out of the, of the work of God and our sanctification that is being talked about here. But secondly, let's consider how this particular passage instructs us to go about this work. How is it to be done? Well, it's to be done continually. It's to be done continually. Paul, he calls them to obey in, uh, in verse 12 uh, by working it out, not only in his presence, but much more in his absence. So all the more reason to continue laboring for spiritual maturity, for holiness. Paul is saying, when I'm not there watching you, because Philippians, ultimately you're not doing this for me. You're not doing this ultimately for me, whether I'm there or not. God is at work in you. Doesn't, he doesn't get any closer. He's at work in you. I may be absent. I may not be watching you. But he is. Christ is. For he is with us always to the end of the age. This very Christ before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess. This very Christ who obeyed to the point of death. Even death on the cross. This very Christ who has given us his Holy Spirit. So prove your love and your respect and your worship to him by exceeding your past faithfulness and going above and beyond. Even when I'm not there, continue to do this. And, and church, may it be so with us at all times, whether uh, when we're with others, when we're with our fellow believers, 
and when nobody but God is watching us. At all seasons of life, in sickness and in health, in poverty or prosperity, in peace or persecution, let us work out our salvation continually. Let us grow in sanctification continually. And this is also to be done with fear and trembling. As the end of verse 12 says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So what does this mean? Is fear, is fear really to describe our relationship with God? Is Paul, is he contradicting himself? Did he forget what he wrote in Romans 8.15 when he speaks of our relationship to God in this way? He says there, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. What's, what gives? You know, I, I think that, that Romans 8.15 verse, that's something that most Christians, you know, we, we love to think about that, how God is our Father. We can come to Him and pray, Abba, Father. But what do we do with Philippians 2.12? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, fear, the, the word in the Greek is, is phobos. Uh, according to uh, Mark Keown, he's a Bible uh, commentator, he says that in Greek thought, it has a range of meanings. It, it can mean terror, flight, uh, to put to flight, fear, frighten, to be afraid, to fear, to be apprehensive, anxiety, or it can mean also awe and reverence. Awe and reverence. Trembling comes from the word traumas. Uh, according to John MacArthur, he says this, this uh, refers to shaking and is from the, it's the word from which our English word tremor derives. So fear and trembling. And these two words, this, this word pair is used together uh, a few times in the New Testament. So in, first, in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul had sent one of his ministry partners, Titus, to the church of Corinth. And the Corinthians, they had had one of, uh, well, it seems like they had a lot of scandals in their church, but there was a scandal that they were supposed to be dealing with, exercising church discipline on the offender, and Titus was going to check on things. And it says, and Paul is encouraging them by how they received Titus. In, in 2 Corinthians 7, 15, he says, they received him with fear and trembling. Now, in that context, there's, there's nothing that would lead us to believe that, that they disliked Titus. But the fear and trembling is, is used to describe their deep respect, their awe, the, the great care that they took to receive this messenger from Paul with the greatest honor to comply with, with what, what he was wanting of them. They were being very careful not to disappoint. Paul also used this pair of words in Ephesians 6.5 when he instructs uh, Christians who, were, who found themselves in slavery as bondservants. And he, he instructs them, how do you live out your, your Christian life as a slave? He, he, he encourages them. He says, 
to obey their earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. So he's saying, obey, obey them as you would Christ. Fear and trembling also will describe our obedience to Christ. So there are many passages of Scripture which present the fear of the Lord as a positive thing, uh, leading to a life of joy. This, this fear of God is actually a, it's a mark of true holiness. Proverbs 28.14 says, Blessed or happy is the one who fears the Lord always. That's, in other words, this is a desirable thing. You want, to, you want to be one who is described as fearing the Lord always. On the other hand, the absence of the fear of the Lord is spoken of in Scripture as a, as a mark of ungodliness. Uh, the long list of, of kind of a summary, a laundry list, a dirty laundry list of the sins of mankind in Romans 3 ends with these very words. It says, kind of to sum it all up, the rotten cherry on top of this rotten Sunday, there is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God. The fear and trembling that we're called to here is perfectly consistent with love for God. It's not an either or. Earlier in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul had spoken of the encouragement in Christ that the Philippians had experienced. And he's just finished speaking of their God and Savior who had taken the form of a servant and died the death of the cross to save them. And so, as we think about, you know, the, all those different ways that these words can be taken, the different ways that uh, fear and trembling could, could be used in the Greek. It seems like the, the connotation that they have here is not, it's not a servile fear, uh, not a dread and, and a hatred like, you know, like a slave might, might feel as he hears the footsteps of a harsh taskmaster walking up behind him, whip in hand, to inspect his work. Not, not that kind of fear, but rather a, a deep reverential fear combined with love for one that you want nothing more than to please and to honor. One before whom you feel that your, your greatest expressions of love and adoration are as nothing. One that, is, one that you, you love and admire and adore and worship, and yet who is so great that you, you are slow to, to speak in his presence. You, are, you recognize this is my maker. This is my God. The one that has eternal life and eternal death in his hands. The one who holds my destiny. John MacArthur gets at the meaning well when he writes that, that such fear involves self-distrust, a sensitive conscience, being on guard against temptation. It necessitates opposing pride and being constantly aware of the deceitfulness of one's own heart as well as of the subtlety and strength of one's inner corruption. It is a, a dread that seeks to avoid anything that would offend 
and dishonor God. And so let's, let's think about what this might look like in our lives. Let's apply this to ourselves a little bit. This, this reverential awe and even trembling before the God that we love and we want nothing more than to honor. Christian, don't approach your growth in holiness casually. Your, your Christian life, your life as a Christian in this world, your, your obedience to Christ, that's not just a side gig. It's not a hobby. It's not something that you clock in for an hour on Sunday, but the rest of the week you just kind of coast through life and it's, it is what it is. Like you gave God your, your hour a week. No, this is a lifetime endeavor. It's, it's in which you're, you're seeking to glorify God in all of your life, in all of what you do. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And so you, this means that you treat God's every instruction as important. You know, some, some things we read in, Bible, in the Bible and Maybe we don't say this, but kind of deep down, we really don't think that's all that important. Like, how, how important is it really, God? Like, I'm, I'm avoiding the big sins, but I don't know. I don't know what I think about that, you know? I'll have to study that more. But if we're, if we're approaching our Christian growth with fear and trembling, then every instruction of God, every word of God will be deeply important to us. Even if it seems small or insignificant to us or to those around us, even if we don't see the reason for it, even if it's something that, that we just don't quite understand, if our God and our King has commanded it, the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess, then we're going to take it seriously. The instructions you don't understand, what do we do? We study. We, we, we search them out. We do our best to understand them so that we can begin to live them. You make it your lifelong pursuit to grow in faithfulness and Christ-likeness, thanking God daily for his patience, as there are so many things that we don't even realize that we're doing that are actually not what God would ha be having us to do. You know, and God just hasn't shown us yet, right? Praise God for his patience. But we don't want to take it for granted either. We want to we desire to honor him as much as we can in every area of our lives. So your growth in Christ-like character is worth praying over. It's worth fasting over. It's worth losing sleep over. It's worth losing your smartphone or your computer over. If those are a stumbling block to you, deleting your social media if need be, it's worth the humbling act of confessing our sin struggles to another person and getting counsel and help and accountability and prayer until we overcome. You know, help me out. That's what the local church is for, right? I need some help here. I, my, my wheels are spinning. Help me. Hold me accountable. Pray for me. It's worth agonizing hours of self-examination. It's worth life-giving hours of meditation on God's power, his goodness, his love, his mercy, and justice, his faithfulness, his promises, and yes, his commands. It's worth receiving correction over. To work out our salvation with fear and trembling means that 
that we take it so seriously. We take our sanctification so seriously that we're not going to just casually brush it off when others call out sin in our lives. I say, hey, hey, brother, maybe you should think about what you're doing here. Maybe you should, sister, maybe you should reflect on, on what you're not doing here. And, and Christ calls us to do this and you're not. When others bring those things up, sometimes maybe with, even with a snarky attitude, what so often happens? You know, our, our inner defense lawyer takes the stand, immediately he starts building our defense. Um, you know, maybe, maybe we don't even make excuses to their face, but we're thinking of all the excuses in our minds, like, oh, they just don't understand, you know. I know what I'm doing. Uh, they, ju- they just don't get it. But if we're approaching our, our spiritual growth with fear and trembling, then we can't afford to ignore any potential that maybe we are sinning and maybe we have a blind spot here that we need to examine, maybe we need to consider. Maybe they're misjudging our actions or our words, but you know what? Just in case, I'm going to think about what they said. I'm going to pray over what they said. I might get a second opinion because I'm taking sin so seriously that any potential threat must be investigated. On the morning of uh, December 7th, 1941, the Japanese Imperial Navy attacked Pearl Harbor. Spurgeon has been reading about this in his school. Um, So Spurgeon, you know all about this right now. But in in what was a a surprise attack on an unprepared American forces, and, and so many people died, ships were sunk, But it shouldn't have been. It should not have been a surprise attack. There were warning signs that were ignored. And among those warning signs was that from the best and northernmost radar site at Opana on Oahu Island. As historian Richard B. Frank retells it in his article uh, entitled, The Three Missed Tactical Warnings That Could Have Made a Difference at Pearl Harbor, Here's what, here's what he says. He says, At that radar site, in, on the morning of December 7th, two very junior enlisted men, Joseph L. Lockhart and George E. Elliott, were about to shut off their set on schedule at 7 a.m. So I guess they were watching the radar through the night, and they're about to shut it off at 7 a.m. When at 7.02 a.m., they saw by far the most sizable return echo they had ever observed. The American radio waves etched a startling, broad, vertical spike on the Opana oscilloscope, rebounding from some of the 183 aircraft of the first wave of Japanese attackers. So this is the warning sign that there's something out there approaching. The, The perplexed pair, these junior enlisted men, They reported at about 7.15 a.m. to the Air Information Center at Fort Shafter a major flight of aircraft to the north, now about 88 miles distant. So they were the only two men that manned the center. The switchboard operator relayed the call to his superior, Lieutenant Kermit Tyler. But Tyler was not the regular controller and was merely present for training. As Tyler listened to the report, he recalled that, there, that a flight of B-17s, you know, U.S. bombers, was due in from the West Coast that morning. 
and the bearings seem to be approximately correct for the flight. By coincidence, the two tracks were in fact close. And so the commander just assumed, well, that's probably just our B-17s flying back. You know, they're, in, they're due in this morning. During their conversation, Tyler failed to explain that the flight comprised only about a dozen aircraft and that the privates and the, the privates, the junior enlisted men, they failed to tell him that the echo signified at least 50 aircraft. Tyler took no action. So he didn't investigate. He didn't take the warning as seriously as he should. He didn't look into it. The warning sign that appeared, it appeared on the radar, but it wasn't investigated. You know, it's probably just our B-17s flying back. Probably nothing to worry about. But what a grave mistake that was. But brothers and sisters, how much more serious mistakes might we make that have the potential to bring so much damage to our witness, to dim our light, to give so much fodder to those who want to blaspheme the name of Christ and keep others away from his gospel. We must take our sanctification seriously. We mustn't ignore the unknown or the unpredictable. We are in spiritual warfare and the stakes are very high. So brothers and sisters, you who love the Lord Jesus Christ, you who want to honor him, who is worthy of all honor, you in whom the Spirit of God dwells, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So we've considered the what and the how, but now let's turn our attention thirdly to the why of verse 13. Why are we commanded to do this? To work out our salvation and why in this way, with, with this fear and trembling? What's the further reason that's given here? It, in verse 13, it's, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. It's God who's at work in you. Wait, so work it out, but God is the one that's working? To which some might say, well, why do we need to work if God is working? I mean, it, wouldn't it make more sense to read it like this? Like, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God isn't working. You know, he, he's left this part up to you. That's not what it says. It says, for it is God who works in you. One uh, one commentator says that by going on to explain that it is God who works, Paul may appear to render the command in verse 12 for us to work meaningless. And he, he's, he calls this an, an extreme formulation of the paradox of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. That just because God is in control doesn't mean that we're to sit by and do nothing. Often what people tend to do when they come to a passage like this, where we have two things that seem like they don't quite fit together, we don't quite understand how they fit together, is we tend to downplay one truth in favor of another so that it makes better sense to our minds. And we can fall into one extreme or another on either side of the road of truth. So some might come to this passage and just 
and go to the extreme of focusing solely on the fact that God is at work within us and, and the implication of that that they would come to, which would contradict this passage, they would say, well, see, you just need to yield yourself to his working. You just need to let go, to rest. Let God, uh, take, let God change you. You don't necessarily need to pray and read your Bible and you know, give all this thought to how to avoid compromising situations. Just, just, just go about your life and God will do what he's going to do. But others might come to this passage and say, look, it says we must work. We must work. This means that it all depends on us, that our sanctification is completely in our hands. God has done his part, and now it's our turn. And it's all up to us. And both of those are wrong. Both of those are extremes that, that contradict either one of either verse 12 or verse 13 either downplaying and denying God's work in us or that our work is actually his work and that, that when we work and make progress in Christianity and Christian maturity, we can't pat ourselves on the back one bit. But that we, you know, we also must work. And as we do, it's God working. So as we see ourselves loving God more, hating sin more, resisting temptation more successfully, serving others more joyfully, we must stop in wonder and awe and recognize that the God of the universe, our Lord and Savior, is working in us, changing us by his infinite power and might. And then we should continue. We should continue pressing on and continue doing everything we can to live our lives as living sacrifices to him. And the New Testament frequently refers to Christian working in this very way. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was, in, that was with me. So which was it, Paul? Were you working were you planning and traveling and speaking and enduring persecution? Tr yes, I was planning. I was traveling. I was speaking. I was enduring persecution. But truly, it wasn't I. Anything that I did, that's the grace of God. That's the grace of God with me. In Colossians 1.29, it says, he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So I'm working with all God's strength that he's working in me. One commentator put it this way, God's spirit is the internal generator of Christian obedience. So yes, we do have a responsibility to do, to act, to work to obey in our sanctification. But, the, but from start to finish, it's God who's at work, willing and working this obedience in us. And notice how, he's, how, how it's phrased there. He gives us the will, both to will and to work. So he gives us the want to. Because just going through the motions, that's not true, that's not true obedience. That's not truly pleasing to God. I mean, it's better than not doing anything, but we should also love righteousness and love 
and, get, and derive joy out of doing what God wills for us to do. He works in us both to will and to work. What an encouragement this is. And, and we're also encouraged by reminding the con- remembering the context of Philippians 1.6, right? That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So yes, we do have a responsibility. We must work in our sanctification. Our work is necessary. But it's also a work assured of success. And so confident in God's work, we work. And it's his work in us. And to him belongs all the glory. But let's not forget the goal of God's work. As verse 13 says, God is willing and working in us for his good pleasure. What what does that mean for us? Well, Romans 8.29 says that, that those whom the Father foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Guys, that that is where the Christian life is headed. We are being remade into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He of whom the Father said from heaven at the start of Jesus' ministry, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. As Christians, we are destined to share in God's holiness so that we'll resemble for all eternity the most worthy and holy and beautiful being, our very God and Savior. When the angels see us in the glory of heaven one day, they will see the resemblance of Jesus' character in us, his righteousness. And when our maker looks upon us, he will see no spot or wrinkle or any imperfection of sin will be presented before him blameless on that day. He will see the, the perfection and the beauty of the holiness of the character of his son, which he has worked in us. And he will smile upon his work. It's for his good pleasure. He will smile upon his work and rejoice. As Zephaniah 3.17 says, he will exult over us with loud singing. What an, that's a mind-boggling thought. What greater joy and pleasure and satisfaction and security than this, to have the approval and delight of our own God, our very maker, who has fashioned us after his good pleasure. Then, you know, shame, that'll be a thing of the past. Insecurity, that's a, that'll be a thing of the past. We won't be, we, I don't even know if we'll be able to remember what that feels like because we'll be so blown away by the fact that God delights in us. You will know love as you have never known love. Safety and peace as you have never fully known them here on this side. Fullness of joy, which means there is no possible way that I could be happier, that I could be more filled with joy. Fullness of joy. So, for those who love God above all, there is no more pleasant thought, no more encouraging thought than that God himself is working in us for his good pleasure. And that is our greatest pleasure.
So before I close, let me just say a word to you who may be listening, who don't believe on Christ. Maybe you're trusting in your own working, your own merits, your own righteousness to get you to heaven, to gain God's, uh, to gain God's forgiveness. Perhaps you don't really think that you need saving. Maybe you think you, you haven't really done all that much or been all that bad. Maybe you've done enough good to outweigh what you've done. I just want to encourage you, you know, this, I want to encourage you this morning in a friendly way to be afraid. To be afraid. To fear what you might miss out on. To fear that you will be on the, forever on the outside looking in with endless regrets. But let this fear, let it, let it compel you to the one who stands ready to receive you, ready to forgive you with open arms, to embrace you with nail-pierced hands that were pierced for the salvation of sinners because he loves sinners and he delights in showing mercy to sinners. Come to him, come to him just as you are. No need to clean yourself up first. No need to get in the right spiritual mood to feel a sufficient sorrow. None of these things can make you more fit to be rescued by Jesus. None of these things will make Christ more willing to receive you because he has done all that is required. His blood is a full and sufficient payment for the darkest and most shameful of your sins and for the inadequacies in your repentance. Yes, he sees all of that. He knows that you're not as sorry as you should be, but he's ready to take you. He's ready to take you as you are and save you, forgive you, receive you, and don't you know it, change you. Come because he commands you to come. And let God take you and pardon every sin and adopt you as his child and let him begin to clean you up. And then you can, with the power of his Holy Spirit, set to work to obey everything Christ has commanded out of gratitude. Brothers and sisters, you who do believe this morning, think about these things. Meditate on them. Think about the pit from which you've been rescued. The cost by which you were redeemed, the blood of Christ, and the God who is at work in you, the glory for which he's destined you. And let these things, let them, let them spur you on to watchfulness, to more energetic strivings for holiness as God works in you with all of his power. And so, brothers and sisters, work out your salvation continually, with fear and trembling, because God himself is working in you and he's working something better and more glorious than we could ever imagine. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this hope that we have. Thank you for the clarity of your word. Lord, help us to be watchful. Help us to pray. Help us to labor to give up our lives daily as a living sacrifice to you in every way, in every way that we can see. And we thank you, Lord, that despite of all of the inadequacies of our, of our living, we don't have to question our, our peace, Lord, that, that we have in Christ through faith because of his perfection.
And so we praise you and we thank you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.